Oh Lord, may the words of my mouth, may the thoughts and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. A lot of time I remember thinking, uh, this has got to be one of the strangest experiences of my life. So it was a little over eight months into uh, my first call as a pastor, and a young couple connected to the congregation I was serving was looking to get married. You see, uh, the bride and, and her family, they'd attended the church back when she was little. Uh, her fiancé, uh, she'd met him when she was off at college, and, and I, I got the chance to do my first wedding. You know, it's a, it's a strange thing to do uh, a wedding uh, especially when you're a brand new pastor. Let's see, first, uh, you're trying to figure out what it means to be a pastor, uh, what it means to bring uh, uh, the Word of God and two people's lives together to, to connect these two things. And then you're trying to figure out what it looks like to do a wedding, and not just any wedding, but a wedding in this particular place. And so, so maybe you got all the answers to all the big theological questions, uh, but then it's the night of the wedding rehearsal. The mother of the bride comes up to you, and she asks if she can use an aisle runner down a carpeted sanctuary, and you stare back at her like a deer in the headlights because you have no idea what to say. And then uh, if you're a new pastor like I was, you've been married for 18 19, maybe, maybe 20 months, and, uh, and you're grappling with the reality that it is your job to help this couple navigate realities that you're only beginning to figure out. And so it's this strange experience. And it makes you wonder who really should have gotten the honoraria uh, for your first wedding or two. But you see, none of this is uh, the strange experience I'm talking about. Uh, that happened on the day of the wedding. What you need to know about this wedding is, uh, is that the bride's father uh, was a local florist. And uh, when your dad's a, a local florist, that means two things to your wedding. First, it means that when you walk into the sanctuary, it looks absolutely stunning. I mean, there are flowers everywhere and ledges that you didn't even know existed. And it's because your dad, you know, he's pulled out all the stops. He's he showered grace upon grace upon grace on your wedding. And, and second... It means that there's going to be a lot of people at your wedding. Because when your dad is a, a local business owner, a well-known local business owner, it means that there are a lot of people that you got to invite to your wedding. And so the music starts, the, the bridal party processes in, and we take our places. And, you know, it's a privilege to be invited into these moments, you know, to bring God into uh, to times like this. Uh, but that's when I realize uh, that I am standing there. There's somewhere between two, three, maybe 400 people in front of me. And I only know the wedding couple, the bride who's in the middle but slightly to the right, and the groom who's in the middle but slightly to the left. And here I am, not sitting in the back row, not a, not a date who's been brought to this wedding, but quite literally at the center of this celebration. That's a strange experience, especially the first couple of times you do this. And, and I point all of this out, not to share the confessions of, of what it's like to become a pastor, uh, but rather to point out the strange thing in the reading you just heard. You see, Jesus, the Son of God, 
the Savior of the world, the Lord of all, he attends a wedding. But he's not at the center of the celebration. Instead, he's a guest on the outside, barely acknowledged. See, that's where Jesus is in today's reading. That's where he is until later we discover he isn't. See, it's with that thought in mind uh, that we arrive at this story that's probably familiar to many of you. It's, uh, it's the beginning of Jesus' ministry. John the Baptist has just identified Jesus as the Messiah, and then Jesus goes on to gather a couple of disciples, and so you remember the stories of Peter and Andrew, Philip and Nathaniel, and it's at this point that we discover that there is a wedding in Cana of Galilee. You know, even today, there's uh, some debate about where that wedding would have been held, but the important detail is this. Uh, Cana, Cana is a small town near Nazareth where Jesus' ministry begins. And in that small town, there is a wedding. And if, if you think that weddings are a big deal today, in Jesus' day, they are so much more. I mean, the groom and his friends, they, they make their way through the city to the, to the bride's house to find her. She's at her father's house, and there uh, a bunch of guests have already gathered, and there's a, a big celebration, eating and drinking. And, and at the end of it all, the opposite of the way that we tend to do it, there's a small ceremony. The bride and the groom, they exchange vows, and they become husband and wife. And it's at this point that the celebration continues, and not just into the night, but for a small town like Cana, everyone's invited, uh, even people from nearby towns and villages. And, and that's why it's completely reasonable that Jesus, his mother, and a group of his disciples would arrive on the third day of this wedding, even though there's no apparent connection between this group of people and the couple that's getting married. You know, we're not told exactly how long it is uh, that Jesus is at this wedding before the, the wine runs out, but make no mistake, this is not supposed to happen. What the first hearers of the story would know is, is that, that running out of wine in a wedding, it's not just going to bring shame on the wedding, it's going to bring shame on the couple. It's going to bring shame on their entire marriage. And, and if that's the conflict in this story, then you already know the resolution. See, Jesus' mother looks at him and says, they've run out of wine. You know, maybe his uh, response seems a little harsh to you. Woman, why do you involve me? But believe it or not, this is actually an appropriate and even a, a loving sort of way to address one's mother in Jesus' day. And so Jesus goes on to explain why he shouldn't be involved. My hour hasn't come, which is simply his way of saying, you know, my, my destination is the cross. My destination is the place where I'm going to save well, people like me and, and you. His destination isn't to do some party trick at a wedding in, in a nearby town or village. And yet Jesus knows that he can use this moment to point people, to point us in the right direction. You see, that's when, uh, that's when Jesus, this guest at this wedding, that's when Jesus becomes the master 
He directs the servants to fill those six stone jars full of water, and, and when they draw the water out, they discover wine, and not just any wine, but choice wine, the best for last. And that's when John tells us that Jesus' disciples, those who've gathered, they believe in him. Now, one of the things I, I love about John's gospel is uh, that John is very, very clear about why he's writing to us. See, it's on the other end of his story about Jesus, uh, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, that, that John tells us that, uh, that Jesus performed many other signs, many other signs that are not recorded in this book. But these signs, John tells us, are recorded so that you might believe. So you might believe that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah, and that by believing in him, you might have life in his name. Yes, that means uh, that John isn't just writing to tell us a good story. He's not just writing to share sensational news. He's writing with a purpose so that we might believe, or, or to put it another way, so that we might change our perspective so that when we hear or think or talk about Jesus, uh, we wouldn't just hear or think or talk about him like a guest, a guest at a wedding, but rather that we would treat him like the master he really is and place him at the center of our lives. Not you, uh, but, but it's so hard to do this. So easy uh, to leave Jesus on the outside, uh, barely acknowledged. You know, sometimes, sometimes that's intentional. I mean, sometimes we know what Jesus has to say, and we just don't want to hear it. Or sometimes, sometimes we just don't know what Jesus has, and we, we don't want to go to Him. But at least for me, more often than not, it's unintentional. You know, I'm putting together our family's budget, or I'm spending time with our kids, or I'm picking the next show that Andrea and I are going to watch every night before we go to bed, and it doesn't even cross my mind that Jesus is the master of my life in these places too. You know, even when we do let him in, even when we do invite him to the wedding, so often we invite Jesus like he's a guest. I mean, Jesus, we can talk about money, or we can talk about my parenting, or we can talk about the kind of shows that I like to watch, but we can only talk about it when I need you, when the wines run out. That's when we can talk about these things. You see, this, this is why John tells us this story about Jesus, the first of his signs that take place at this wedding in Cana of Galilee to change our perspective, to show us that, that no matter how hard we try or, or no matter how hard we don't try, Jesus is more than just a guest because he's the master. He's the, the master at this wedding, and he's also in the master of all the places in lives like yours and mine. You see, that brings us uh, to the beautiful part of this story. Because John shows us who our master is, what he's really like. He's a master who graciously and abundantly provides for us, even when we leave him on the outside. 
Yeah, I know that uh, preachers have beaten this part of the story to death, uh, but for just a moment, uh, consider the picture that John paints for us. Jesus shows up at a wedding, and this wedding has been going on for three days, for three days, and and then the wedding couple, they run out of wine, and, and this isn't his problem. He's the guest, and his hour, his purpose, his reason for being, it's, it's in another place. And yet our master graciously and abundantly provides for us. So he tells the servants, go and, and fill those six stone purification jars full of water. And they'd hold between 120 and 180 gallons. And so they go and they fill them, but when they draw it out, they discover wine and not just any wine, but choice wine, and not just enough wine, but more than enough. Enough wine, if you do the math, uh, that could fill six to nine hundred bottles. And it's all because our master graciously and abundantly provides for us. And John tells us this story so that just like these servants, just like Jesus' disciples, just like his mother, we might believe in him. And place him at the center of our lives. Now, I may surprise you to learn uh, that Jesus' mother, Mary, uh, only appears twice in John's gospel. See, she appears in a number of different places in the other gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, but she only appears twice uh, when John writes his gospel about her. First time uh, happens in this reading, and the other time happens when Jesus' hour has finally come, when he's hanging on a cross. And you got to remember that, uh, that nothing in John's gospel, nothing in John's gospel happens by accident. So, it's safe to assume that this is uh, intentional, and it, and it points the way, once again, to who our master really is, what he's like. A master who graciously and abundantly provides for us, and, and not just wine at a wedding, but he provides everything that we need for this life and the next. He provides life. He provides forgiveness. He provides salvation. And just like, uh, just like his disciples, he calls us to follow him. And, and once again, this is the part where I find Mary incredibly helpful because she points us in the right direction. So if you remember the story, you remember that, that, that she tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. And that's what we do. And it's not because we have to. It's not out of some sense of obligation. It's because we know who Jesus really is. The one who graciously and abundantly provides for us. The one who gives everything, even his life, when the moment calls for it. And so we follow him. We do what he says. In him, we place him at the center of our lives. Because Jesus is more than just a guest. He's a master. He's the master who loves each and every one of us. Amen. And may the peace of God which surpasses all understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.
This time I invite you to rise as we confess our faith together using the words of the Apostles' Creed.